Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hey, hello everyone. (laughs) Welcome everyone to this Sydney Writers' Festival event. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to see you all here for this In Conversation with Holly Ringland. My name is Michaela Kolofsky. I'm an interviewer and a moderator, and it's just wonderful to share this afternoon with you. Um, I wanted to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land whereon, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to acknowledge and welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are joining us today. So, Holly Ringland is the author of the international best-selling novel, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, published in 2018. It was translated into 31 languages since then, and Alice Hart has been adapted for the small screen and will be streaming later this year on Amazon Prime as a seven-part series, adapted by a powerhouse of creative women, starring Australia's Asha Keddie and Leah Purcell, alongside Sigourney Weaver, and it will be seen in more than 240 countries and territories. I'm done. Yeah, Bye. yeah. <laughs> and we hope you enjoyed the session. Thank you no, for coming. No. Thank you for coming. And the Lost Flowers of Alice Hart also run a, a raft of awards in 2019, including the Australian Book Industry Award General Fiction Book of the Year. In 2021, she co-hosted Back to Nature on ABC TV. Holly grew up in her mother's tropical garden on Bundjalung Country, the southeast Queensland coast of Australia. After spending a decade living between the UK and Australia, COVID sort of left her a bit stranded here, thank goodness. <laughs> and she has been working and writing and living and planting things, seeds and ideas, um, on Yungumbar land just outside of Brisbane since 2020. Her second novel, published late last year, is The Seven, is the seven Skins of Esther Wilding, and that's the one we'll be talking about the most today. Esther is a book about family, about grief, sisterly love and courage. It's about the meaning we give things and how that can keep us alive. Her writing pulses with joy, with a very deep human recognition and celebration of how stories can save us and heal us. She writes setting with such detail and no one, but no one, puts emotion on the page like Holly Ringland. She's also working on a new book, which we'll get to talk with her about a little bit later on. But for now, please make Holly Ringland very welcome. (laughs) Oh, thank God. Thank you, you guys. It's really delightful to see you. I've got the emotion overheat sweats already, so I'm just... Like, the Arctic wind outside, I was really glad for the coat, but, like... Okay. Right. So, Holly, um, I want to start with Esther. When we meet Esther Wilding at the start of your novel, she's been running from grief, and I want to know what's happened in her life and why was her response to run? We're going to start easy. Um... (laughs) question. So in the opening chapters of uh, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding, it's pretty clear within the first few pages, Esther is driving home to the east coast of Lutruwita in Tasmania, where she was born and raised. And she really resents every kilometre that she gets closer and closer to home. Uh, She left the east coast and went west after her cherished, idolised, beloved big sister, Aura, was last seen down at the ocean's edge. And that was the last time anybody saw her. So her and her parents uh, had to start trying to knit their lives together without any sense of closure or uh, any sort of... I don't know that grief can ever be neat, but there was no sort of this happened and so this is what we are grieving. 
uh, Esther's way to cope with the enormity of the loss was to leave. It was to leave everything that was familiar and to go somewhere where nobody knew her and she didn't know the landscape and she believed, highly unautobiographical story from my 20s, um, that she could start again and outrun everything she'd left behind and it would never catch up with her. Uh, that's why she ran. Mm. And the reason that she couldn't face it is because the sun fell out of her sky. I think it was probably the very worst fear she had, one of those mortal primal fears that we all have about the people that we love most. How could we possibly ever survive without them? Mm. So uh, she sets about trying to uh, live this I suppose, spectral half-life because she doesn't want to face what she's grieving and what she's lost, but she um, tries to think that she can start again without doing that, without facing it. The great irony being that I set out to write a book about joy, everyone, <laughs> when I wrote this novel. <laughs> after, I, after I wrote The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, I was like, that's it, I'm going to... I'm just going to write about joy. It's just going to all be joy. <laughs> and I sat down and within the first couple of pages of being with Esther on this journey as she drives home, I realised very quickly and in that deep guttural place where we all hold the truth that sometimes we can't bear looking at, that to write a book about joy meant I needed to write a book about grief because they are the same coin. They are two sides of the same coin, and we only know the depths of both by knowing the contrasting opposite. So if Esther was going to numb herself to grief, she was also unwittingly numbing herself to joy. So that's how the journey kicks off. And that's a theme that comes up a lot in the book, that beautiful tussle and kind of monkey grip between grief and joy. And we'll talk about it a lot this afternoon. Um, you mentioned that beautiful way, do you describe it as you always do, of that idea of your, your sun falling out of the sky for mm. Esther when Aura disappears. The Alice Hart was about this very kind of solitary person in a lot of ways, even mm. though she wasn't an only child. Mm. Why did you want to write about siblings and sisters in particular in Esther? Why did that come to you? What did that allow you to do? I, I thought about this. I thought about this a lot because I wondered if she would have a brother or a sister, or um, an older or younger sibling. And um, there was something really interesting and powerful to me about the younger sibling. Is so obviously, if Esther was the oldest of the two, the younger sibling has that maternal, at least in my experience of being a sibling, that maternal nurturing instinct. And to lose them would almost be like losing a child. And for this story, that for whatever this story was that was in my body and asking me to write it, that didn't feel quite right. Mm. There was something that I was really drawn to about Esther being the younger sibling and how much you idolise and are proud of and look up to an older sibling and the path that they have cut through the dark woods of life before you, that you're constantly sort of running to catch up. 
And the reason why I chose Aura as a sister is because there is something about sisters that is very, I mean, yay, family, but there's something about <laughs> sisters that is very mirror-like. Um, and, and there was... There was a really interesting dynamic there in what Aura was that reflected what Esther is in. And I'm sure, like, that's in all of our families, as I said. Um, but particularly between two young women born not very far apart, there's only three years between them, though, those mirrors and what they reveal in each other is what I was really drawn to, particularly with with Aura disappearing and um, leaving Esther to wonder why. You joked before that you wanted to write a book about joy and this book came out. Um, <laughs> it's like that's Holly's translation system. Like she wants to write joy and it's just like tears for 300 pages. But happy, some happy tears. Who um, wants to be friends with me? <laughs> but I wondered as well, some authors talk about how stories come to them. And you hear authors say, you know, it's, I, I build them from the ground up. They're two-dimensional until I know more about what they're there to do. And other authors talk about how story crystallises. And I wondered how Esther Wilding came to you, because it's actually only your second novel. Mm. How did it come to you fully formed? Did it come to you in shards? How did it come to you? You're really good at this, Michaela Kolofsky. <laughs> well, I really like the book. And I want to know. I think we want to know, Holly. I always, whenever I get asked a question like this, I resist like the first knee-jerk answer because I'm like, but is that the truth? <laughs> and the, the truth is actually that I handed in the final edits of Lost Flowers before it went to print. And uh, my beautiful publisher, Catherine Milne at HarperCollins, she said to me, the thing that you just, after 483 million billion edits, <laughs> which Catherine deserves a medal for going through with me also, to hear the words from her, you can rest now. <laughs> Your work is done. And so there's this like beautiful window where it's before the mortal fear of a book being published and going out into readers' hands and the end of writing the draft of it, where there was this... I was in Manchester in England at the time, uh, that's where I, before the pandemic, I lived between England and Australia. And I was in Manchester and Catherine said to me, your work is done, go and read for pleasure. And after working on this book for four years, I was like, what is that? <laughs> so I went into my office where my to-be-read pile sits permanently waiting for me on my bookshelves. And I pulled a book off the shelf that I'd bought five years earlier, a book of Swedish fairy tales. I descend from uh, Celtic and Scandinavian folks. Uh, my ancestors are Norwegian, Danish, and Swedish. And uh, I bought these Swedish fairy tales because, you know, if I, I'd never been to Denmark or Sweden at that point. And to know about a place, I love going to the stories that come from that land. So I bought this book, never read it. Uh, five years later, pull it off the shelf. It's by a woman named Helena Nyblom, who I had never heard of before. I decide to open it and read whatever page I, whatever story I open the book to. So I open it up. The first story I see is a story called All the Wild Waves. And I think, oh, this sounds great. And I'm a girl that grew up, 
I grew up on the Broadwater, on Bunjalung country, on the Gold Coast, when it was still a two-lane highway. The Saatchi Hotel didn't exist. Um, it was, I was, you know, mum showed me a photo the other day before I came down of me in winter on the beach. I'm wearing bikini bottoms and a jumper. Like, that was my sea-like upbringing. We lived a block from the flat Broadwater. And the sea has always held me because it, I, those formative years were spent there. So I sat down, I read this story. Very briefly, it is the story of Violanta, whose dream in her life, the greatest desire and passion she has for herself, is to get to the sea. It's all she wants, rapturously. So she leaves her farm, where her mother and brother are, without saying goodbye to them, and she follows the little stream at the farm all the way, and she thinks, you will take me to the sea. So off she goes on her journey. Along the way, she is offered a hand in marriage. She's offered a really good job at a flour mill. She comes across um, these beautiful gardens with butterflies and ancient trees, and a woman named Penserosa owns this house and these gardens, and she has crystals and alcohol and spells, and she says to Violanta, stay with me, read all the books in my library. But Violanta looks at her, and this independent woman, Penserosa, she does not have the use of her legs. This fairy tale was written in 1910, where an independent woman could have her own house and garden, but we're not going to let her walk. That's so Violanta says, thank you so much, but I have to get to the sea. So I'm going to spoil the story for you, if that's okay, to get to the end. She makes it to the sea. And the picture here is me, a frazzled, not even yet first-time author with highly questionable personal hygiene after working on this book for months, not sleeping, having stress dreams. I'm like, soothe me, Violanta, give me this fairy tale. And I was thinking, any minute now the Fisher boy is going to walk along and, like, it's going to be like a moment and it's going to feel great. Violanta gets to the sea. She holds her arms out, rapturous to have arrived, to have achieved her dream. The sea rises up in black-green waves and screams at her, do you know us now? We are the wild waves of the sea. And they crash over her, and the last scene of the story is Violanta's body lying lifeless in the ocean. <laughs> now, that's a fairy tale, I tell you. I threw the book at the wall. I'm going to confess. I want you to know I picked it up and stroked it afterwards. But I had this moment of, oh, fuck. <laughs> because the story had picked me. Mm -hmm. I, I sat there and I thought, who is Helena Nyblom? And I got straight onto Google. I started following these gingerbread crumbs of facts. And all of a sudden, I had a woman who was a fairy tale writer and a contemporary of Hans Christian Andersen that nobody really has heard of, who is considered in Scandinavian art as a masked artist, who was one of a collective of women that buried feminist messages in their artwork. So I scanned back between all the wild waves, and on either side of it is like, one day the golden-haired princess went into the forest, and then she met a prince on a horse, and they had 12 children, and life was easy. That was on one side, and then on the other side it was like, one day a girl had a curse, 
and then she ate like an apple, and then everything was fine. <laughs> All she had to do was eat the apple, you know, and she had beautiful blonde hair. And in the middle of that is this visceral, dark, harrowing story of a woman punished for having desire. Mm. And I as I said, follows those, followed those gingerbread crumbs all the way from those northern islands and the other stories that Helen and Nyblom wrote, because we all know I became obsessed and went down a rabbit hole, is she wrote stories about women who have their identities stolen in the forms of fairy tales that are similar to Selkie stories, where a woman is a swan and she comes out of her swan suit and the swan suit is stolen. And it just all started to snowball. And this was in 2018, before I'd even kind of, before I even knew what publicity for Lost Flowers was going to be like. So I did a lot of like, okay, I know, like, I know you're there. I'm going to get to you. I just have to deal with a few other things first. Yeah. So when it came time to sit down and really sit with Esther and, and pull her story together, it felt like there'd been lots of, like sediment in rock laying down like the um like deer rubbin the hawkesbury you know all the sandstone it's a beautiful description like that and for yeah. people who've read the book you know all the skins those those beautiful um reprints either of photographs of statues who are representative of those myths or illustrations mm. from those myths and Holly's sort of taken us through them. And I will ask you about the skins, but it's so beautiful mm. to hear that that's how they came to be. I want to ask you about Esther as a character because I've read many mm. glowing reviews in preparation for our conversations and people love the book and they're really pissed off at Esther. They're really annoyed by Esther. They're like, she makes oh. bad decisions <laughs> and she's full of self-loathing and she needs to just pull herself up and love herself more. And it's like, I think she would if she could, but I wanted to Thank ask you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, yeah, but I wanted to ask you about this, which is that, that, you know, people are responding to the sense that she does make bad choices. The first time I read it, I've read it a few times now, I thought that, I was like, here she goes again, drinking too much and going to bed with someone she shouldn't go to bed with or just, and you can see it's an act of not, taking care of herself. It's an extreme version of that. But I wondered what, what are readers responding to when, when they're annoyed with her in that way? What are we not noticing about her? I wonder if readers feel... when If, if anybody is annoyed at Esther for her decision-making in the beginning of the book when they read it, I wonder if they're feeling the same thing that I felt while I was writing it, which is... I don't want to go back and remember what that was like to live that. I don't want to, like, I remember in particular working with Catherine, my publisher, on this book, and her talking to me about the period just before Esther goes to Copenhagen. And she's like, she leaned forward and she looked at me and she's like, do you remember what it was like to be in your 20s? And I was like, yes, and that's why I'm really glad to be in my 40s and it's behind me. And she said... I want you to, like, you need to go back there mm. and, and write from that place. And I was like, oh, God. And I think that's what readers are feeling if they are frustrated by Esther's choices, that there is something in Esther that is reflecting a mirror that she was reflecting to me. I don't want to know about the bad decisions I make when I'm grieving or when grief has displaced me from my own life and I feel completely out of control and totally lost, but I'll go out into the world and I'll try and, like, smile and be, like, hot maybe, and maybe a cute boy will notice me and that'll solve all my problems. 
But it's also, I felt as well, and something we've talked about before, that she's, you said it before, she's in grief and mm. she's sort of half alive mm. and she's very bereaved. And I think the book is this really interesting meditation on how grief manifests yeah. in all these different ways and how we start to, we never really get rid of it, but how we slip out of it. You talked about the swan skin or the seal yes. skin, but how we sort of, she re-emerges throughout the book. She kind of drip feeds herself little things that start to bring her joy and she mm. moves from grief into joy in that way. Um, I want to ask as well, the book is, a lot of the book is about secrets in that family, in the mm. Wilding family, about what happened to Aura. And for those of you who are here with us who haven't read the book yet, I don't want to spoil things about what happened to Aura. So we'll talk about it in a specific vague. generality. If we can. <laughs> um, but there are a lot of secrets in that family mm. and a lot of shame in that family. And shame seems to be kind of front and centre in your first novel too. How are you thinking about that in relation to the Wilding family and the, the impact that secrets can have? The only reason why I laughed then is because I always forget until I'm in this glaring light and very privileged position. I'm like, every time I've ever said, it's not autobiographical, no, it's fiction, no, it's fiction. And then I get a question like, so grief and shame, and I can feel myself going, oh, God. Um, but I have to say, we, all, we may all feel grief and shame, but we don't all write like Holly. So, but continue. <laughs> there you go again. It's true. Being Michaela Kolofsky. <laughs> Thank you. I, um, when I was younger, when I was a really big reader when I was 16, I used to notice so often that the, the, the blurb or the, the hook line on books was like, a family, a house and secrets. And I was like, not everybody has secrets. I was 16. Uh, and what I have, what I have, this is, this is the part of the event where I say, what I have learned, everyone, <laughs> uh, is that secrets are exactly as you just said. We only keep something a secret when we are guilty or scared or ashamed. So that's what secret is another word for. And what I was really interested in in the dynamic of Esther and her parents and uh, Esther's life without Aura and even reflecting on her relationship with Aura was what decisions they made based on shame. And there's that saying, you know, the, the road to hell is paved in the best intentions. I was really interested in how grey all of this is, that... Esther's parents might have made a decision that shaped her entire life, but they made that decision trying to do a good thing, trying to do maybe the right thing or the best thing by both of their daughters. And that, that tiny decision that you make in a split moment to divulge or not, to tell the truth or not, it's like you know, one of those superhero movies with the timelines where all of a sudden things split off and go into different directions and you're off on living a different life because of the shame and the secret rather than course correcting and telling the truth because the truth is too scary, too painful, requires too much vulnerability. Sometimes writing a novel just feels like being a sadist. <laughs> it's like putting all of these beautiful people through, through quite torturous things. Hmm. Did I just say sadist? <laughs> I, there are wonderful women and men all throughout this book. 
Um, there are women who I adore, you know, mm. Ab- Abalone. Abalone. Abalone, I say her mm. name. Um, the wonderful cousin who's um, in Denmark. And I love Nin and I love, oh, okay. you know, I love, I love Freya. She's complicated. Yeah. But Esther is at the centre of everything for us. And there's been a – it made me think about that big debate that happens mostly with female characters and often to female authors about characters having to be likeable or having to be relatable. And I wondered if you have any thoughts about that whole – the burden of likability for a character. Because Esther isn't always likeable, which to me as a reader made her kind of more compelling because mm. she felt more complicated – I think uh, grief is not likeable. I don't think any of us voluntarily put our hands up and are like, let's do grief today. I think likeability for any of us is a scourge. I think it's a cage. And I think particularly for women, at least in my lived experience as a woman, worrying about being likeable is like constantly swallowing little bombs because you can get yourself bound up in the fear of ever having the sure-footedness to stand in exactly exactly who you are. So I really wanted to... I really liked writing Esther's mess. I was in it with her, and I got asked a really beautiful question the other day about what kept driving me back to my desk to keep writing this story, because I wrote it through the pandemic, not that we're going to talk about that or that any of us need to go back there, but those weren't fun years. They're not going to be our faves. And what drove me back to the desk was I, Esther couldn't get it without me. I needed to show up for her because I wanted her to get her moment where she walks into the sunlight. And it's not aura. It's not aura shining the sun on her, being the sun. She's walked out of this brittle, hard place of scarcity, trying to be likable, choosing bad men, wrong men, uh, fighting with her mum, not having any language to like, or se- like herself or connect with anyone else. And I just really wanted her to experience what it's like, the power of allowing ourselves to be loved and to feel love and to access joy. And the, what the payoff is if we start to stop numbing ourselves to grief, the fullness of the joy and the love that we can feel and get from others no matter how much we think we're not worth it. Mm. There's something I said in the introduction about Holly's writing and I wanted to ask you about it now, which is that you do something that I feel like is your hallmark. Um, oh, God. It's, it's her ability and her willingness to put emotions on the page. Your characters feel a lot and they thrash about in how they feel, which is not every novel you read. Um, and your writing really pulses with emotion and we feel a lot as we read your writing. And I wanted to know when and if you are aware, but when you became aware that that's your thing, that that's maybe your gift? I was the kid that got picked on for being too sensitive. I was the kid that got bullied for being too emotional. I was too much, I felt too much, I had too many feelings. Uh, It was primary school, it was 
it was high school, it was... I didn't even realise that that's what... The, the world has such a way of telling us who we are, and you absorb it and you don't even know that you're taking it in. But I... It was always my biggest weakness, I thought, that I... <laughs> like at 11, would talk to somebody in the playground and be like, how are you? And they would say, yeah, fine, I'm climbing the fort. And I'd be like, no, but are you, are you all right? How are you today? And it was kind of like... And I, I, after enough of that, I felt weird and freaky for... and ashamed, ooh, the shame, for having feelings for expressing them, for talking about them, for asking other people about theirs. And then we all survived teenagehood, how? But we do. Uh, and my 20s. And in my 30s, I started to realise that I'd been hanging out with the wrong people. I had found the wrong people. And um, when you find the right people that accept you and celebrate you and love you for exactly who you are and you believe, even if it's only a keyhole size inside of you, that there might be something in you that deserves that love, that's when I have found my way into a bit more self-acceptance. And that is the place that I have written from. I have thought all my life, up until I was 34, that, I, that there was something wrong with me, that I had some weird heart and mind, and I had, like, maybe everybody else had seven feelings, and I had, like, 483 billion. And um, I really felt like a freak. <laughs> my feelings. Um, and then I wrote The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. And writing that book before I had an agent, before it was published, when it was just me alone, I wrote it totally alone, and uh, writing all of the things that I'd always been picked on for onto the page and getting it out of my body, that changed how I live and that changed how I know myself. And if there's anybody here that's ever been told that you're too much or you're too <laughs> sensitive, if I have any power at all, can I just tell you that it's your superpower? And we need more of it, obviously. So if you ever feel like you're too much, I'm here flying my freak flag with you. <laughs> and so are Esther and Alice. But you kind of show us as well on the page and in what you've just said that if we don't feel our feelings, if, if Esther doesn't feel our feelings, like they eat you up. They'll oh. have their way with you, whether you feel them or not, right? I, I mean, in my experience being alive with bouncing my feelings off other people's feelings... Um, I think we are meant, we are feeling creatures. We are born with hardwired with emotion and to not feel them or even worse, to actively repress them. We're disconnected or cauterizing or compartmentalizing some part of ourself. And whether it's stubbing our toe when we kick the door in the house and wondering why it makes us cry for an hour or we're in the traffic lights and your favourite Pearl Jam CD or song comes on the radio and suddenly you're remembering the 90s and sobbing and you don't know why. Or 
It can be the other way. You just feel sort of almost like manic levels of joy at things. Your psyche, your, your, your psychology is, is having a chance to like, oh, this is what I need. I need to feel so I can go through this thing rather than stuffing it down in a way because we are all descendants of the Victorian era where emotional expression was vulgar. And God help us if we talked about breasts or sadness. You know, like we couldn't talk about our bodies. We couldn't, you know, in that time to speak of the body was vulgar, to speak of how we felt in the body was vulgar. And that trickles down. And I wonder as well, you talk about that idea of all the different ways we repress emotion and then the different ways they come out. Mm. The, in the in the Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, the those where each chapter starts with a, a, a flower and its meaning, mm. and you've mentioned before that it was inspired by the you know the dictionary of of flowers that also comes from the Victorian era. Yes, yes. That that we've tr- always tried to create things to give us a, a, a way of expressing. Yeah, that's what I find fascinating is how even when we tell ourselves. We're, we're fine. We don't need to look at that. I did it for years of my life. I don't need to look there. There's nothing there for me to look at. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And yet we will still find ways to connect with that story in an, like, in an encoded way. And it might not even be direct to us. So what I mean by this is I knew a lady once who would never talk about certain period of her life before a certain age. But she had the biggest collection of beanie babies. Remember those beanie, those bean bag? She had like almost like, hi, come in, do you want a cup of tea? Oh my God. <laughs> like, and one day I asked her about them and uh, she gave me an answer that I read very clearly as b- bullshit. <laughs> And uh, we knew each other for a bit longer and she had a baby that died. And the baby, when the baby was born, the baby had a, a beanie, a beanie baby. And she never talked about it. She didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want to go there. Mm. And yet her house was filled with beanie babies. That inco- and that was her telling her story and being connected to that story and trying to do something with it, even though she couldn't speak it. So how we encode our emotions and our stories constantly gives me a geek high, fascinates me. Mm. Yeah. Talking about things that are fascinating and also we should talk a bit about joy. Yeah. Um, the, the, the sections of Welcome the book. Welcome to joy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the sections of the book um, that are in the, set on the Faroe Islands are very joyful. Yes. You know, I mean, she's getting, Esther is also getting some answers. She's meeting Sophus, who is so important in her sister Aura's life. Mm. And then she sort of meets that whole family of people he lives with, Flossie and Lena and Heidi. Mm. And he's just got the gorgeous women who, the older women who swim in the freezing cold every morning. Yeah. Um, how did you write, how did you bring the Faroe Islands to life the way you did? Because I feel like I can see it, but you, you've not been, have you? No. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't go. I couldn't go. So how did you do that? How did you bring that to life? Who helped you? Did someone help you? So I was convinced I couldn't do this. We, um, my partner Sam and I came home from England at the end of 2019 for Christmas and to film Back to Nature. We were due to go back to England in May 
I had a three-month trip booked to Copenhagen for a month and two months in the Faroe Islands. And I was so ready for just to immerse myself. You know, I, I had three and a half years of research in my office in Manchester ready for me. It is still there, gathering dust. There is a dust, there is a note on my desk saying, you got this, babes. It's gathering dust. It's all waiting for me. I haven't, Sam and I haven't been back since. We're living with my parents on their three-acre property because they are amazing and patient and gorgeous. Also, it's exactly where Sam and I imagined seeing ourselves as middle-aged people living with my parents. <laughs> um, and it's good to live your dreams, and it's, really. I mean, <laughs> that's what we say to each other. We're like, living the dream, babe. Absolutely. Uh, so once, in, in 2020, once it became... We were all living in such a state of... There was just anxiety on top of anxiety, right? And I don't know if, uh, for you guys, but it just magnified everything. And so the world shut down. I had to cancel the trip to Copenhagen and the Faroes. And I rang Catherine and I said, um, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't write a place that I haven't stood on, sniffed, I need to know what the air smells like at seven o'clock in the morning. I need to know, like, do the sheep have bells around their necks? What do people talk about in the supermarket? Like, when you're passing people, when, speaking of supermarket, where does the food come from in the Faroe Islands? I need to see the ship that the food comes in on. Like, and I pitched this, I pitched my case to Catherine and I really meant it. I said, I, I can't do this. I'm going to need to find another novel and pitch that to you. And I say this with full awareness that Catherine is watching me right now, somewhere, as I talk about this. And she was on the phone, and this is just one of the million things that I love about her more than anything. She made all the right noises for an author in distress. Mm. <laughs> oh, yes, this is very hard. Yeah, no, no, I can understand this distress, and I know why... Mm. Mm. And she... I felt so heard. I was like, phew, she gets it? Great. We'll cancel Esther. Tomorrow we'll start coming up with a new novel. She's like, listen, just sleep on it and let's talk about it tomorrow. So the next morning I got a ping on my phone and it was a text message and there was no text, it was just a link. And the link was to a video on YouTube of like, Globally best-selling author Amy Tan of Joy Luck Club talks about how she wrote places she'd never been to and <laughs> time frames she'd never lived in before. And she sent me a few more links. And here we are. And here we are. And here we are. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Um, but I want to talk about something new that you're working on right now. Um, and it has not been named in public and I'd love you to name it and tell us, what are you writing? <laughs> what are you writing, Holly? I'm so, I'm so going to fail at not being awkward in this moment. <laughs> I'm just casually in the middle of writing a... No. Um, <laughs> I am writing my third book. It's non-fiction this time, which I never thought uh, I would write. Um, it is called The House That Joy Built... And it is about the power and pleasure of giving ourselves permission to create purely because creating brings us joy. And joy is reason alone to do it. Yeah. <laughs>
you. My mum paid you for that round of applause, <laughs> you guys. What I wanted to ask, Holly, when, when she told me she was writing this, I thought, you know, so she's writing about creativity and she's writing about the courage to let yourself be in that space. But it sounds like, it, it sounds like the best writing practice ever, right? It's like incredibly meta how you write about those things while simultaneously sort of practising those things. Have you found that? It's hell. It's hell. It is absolute <laughs> hell. It's like, okay, today let's address self-doubt and self-compassion. And then I find myself sitting there describing how self-doubt feels and what it is and what it can take from us and that the only way that I've learned how to manage self-doubt, for example, is by practising self-compassion, which is not as many of you might know, it's not self-esteem, it's not self-congratulations, it's about accompanying yourself instead of abandoning yourself in discomfort. So I'm at my desk writing this, feeling wildly uncomfortable, filled with self-doubt, second-guessing every single sentence that's coming out of my mouth, and then I'm watching myself type, and then we just have to practice some self-compassion. <laughs> but the reason why it's hell is because to me and for me, it's true. <laughs> and it's like having the cough medicine that you know will make you feel better, but you just don't want it. Yeah. Because there's something about staying in a state of believing that you can't do it that is familiar and risk-free, and it masquerades as safety. But what it's doing is robbing you of living your richest experience of ever knowing yourself or what you might possibly pull out of your galactic-sized imagination for your own joy, which just spills like a river into everybody else around you. So it's hell, you guys. It's, <laughs> it is, but it is also a very beautiful thing to be writing. Joy from hell. Like it's it. Joy from Hell. Joy from Hell. New title. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. It's yeah. got a ring to it, I think. Got a ring. Yeah. And when you talk about creativity in the book, you're not writing a book which is for people who are writers necessarily or painters. No. So I'm no, kind of no. wondering if you can talk a little bit in the time we have about that creativity. Like what, what do you mean by that? And what kind of happens to us when our news creativity gets trapped in us? I don't know that I can answer that. No. <laughs> no. No, because of how many things... I'm right in the middle of writing it, so um, there's many things to say. I think, controversial, I think we're all creative. I think we create every day and we might not even know it. What, you, what knickers you choose to put on when you fall out of bed in the morning is a choice based on some form of preference that comes from, do you like the red ones more than the blue ones? And there's no, like, rationale as to why, but there's a preference there for maybe an aesthetic pleasure or a tactile pleasure, because I don't know why I'm using undies as my example right now, but, <laughs> like, here we are, and let's just go with it. Um, but it's the idea that in everything that we do in our waking hours and in our dreams, we might not think we're creative people, but there might be little things that we're always noticing that we do, the way we might curate a Pinterest board online on our bus ride home from work, the things we cook for the people we love, the way we put an outfit together, the way we adorn, the ourselves. Way we adorn ourselves, the music we love listening to, the playlists we make for people. So the gardens that we till, the 
the dancing we do in the lounge room that nobody can see, the things we bake, the the paint-by-numbers colouring in-book craze. Like, we don't lose our imaginations because we mature and become adults. The boot heel of the world squashes it out of us because somewhere someone has told us something that has made us think that perhaps creativity should be put away with our childish things. Speaking very generally here. Mm. And the learning to write, even though it's the one thing I've known that I've loved since I was little, and the only thing that I knew that I cared about, learning to write because I loved it, changed how I live. And if I have learned anything about coming through the post-traumatic stress that informed the background of writing The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart and choosing over and over and over again to give myself writing because it's the thing that has always brought me joy. There is a, an invisible mountain that we can't see of possibility about ourselves. We don't know if we don't dwell in our imaginations or open the tiniest door for us to... I opened a box of crayons the other day and the smell of them... Have you guys sniffed crayons lately? <laughs> like, if you're stuck, go into Officeworks and sniff the Crayola. It, it triggers something in your imagination from kindy or school and it's that possibility of choice and colour and names and that's what the book is about, is that feeling in all of us and it is just a call from my open-hearted emotional self to everybody else to say, you're allowed to make time to do the thing that you love. Beautiful. Um, there are questions on this side. Thanks very much. And I was just wondering um, if there are older women in your lives that have either played a motherly role or a spiritual role or a creative role, uh, and if you could speak to that and where you found them. I was really, really lucky that when uh, I was born... I lived sort of a six-minute drive away from my very first true love. That was my granny. And my mum would drive me over to granny's house uh, when she went to work or if she had things to do or if I just demanded it. Um, granny and I were kind of the two peas in a pod kind of relationship. She took me with her into her garden under the mango tree. She taught me about the power of all the things that she couldn't say went into the earth and then she watched them bloom. She was my first experience, my first formative experience of the power and awe of age and wisdom. Um, my mum was just recalling the other night about what she went through when my parents moved away from Granny when I was four and the wailing that went on and the notes that I left around the house, even though I couldn't write properly, declaring my hatred for both of my parents and thanks for taking me away from my granny. I had forgotten. Mum has not forgotten. <laughs> I feel like four-year-old me would be very happy with that outcome. <laughs> I, uh, I think one of the beautiful and powerful things about getting a bit older, coming out of your 20s and 30s, is that age stops... You stop noticing age so much in the friendships that you're forming. And uh, the way that I have found... I have, like, a lot of older women friends who are older than me, but I don't notice 
that they are older in terms of an age way. It's more like that wisdom and power way, you know, that they hold. It's the Helen Mirren. That's what it is. It's that sort of factor in them. And how I have found them, I don't know if I have a conclusive answer to like a like a straight answer to that other than I've never turned away, like if I've met a woman, regardless of what her age is, if she's older, I've never turned away from nurturing what could be in our conversation because this is the blessing of being in your 40s is like, yeah, I think you're a badass and this is amazing and I'm going to stay here instead of hanging out with the cool kids. I think that's probably the truest answer I can give you. Could you talk a little bit about tattooing and whether that was part of your life before this book? I love that question. (laughs) Um, So this is the story that I tell about this. I grew up on the Gold Coast. I made it to 25, clubbing in Surface Paradise for seven years, and I made it out clean-skinned. I did not get the dolphin on the hip tattoo. I did not get the lower butterfly tattoo, and that is absolutely zero judgment on anybody who has those tattoos. It is just saying that I nightclubbed every weekend in Cocktails and Dreams and Shooters Nightclub in Service Paradise, and I survived without a tattoo. I think I got my first tattoo when I was 35, and I had never wanted one, and I never thought I would want one because I couldn't commit to a Telstra contract, let alone deciding on a story that I wanted to wear on my skin for my lifetime. Then I wrote The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, and that was me having a reckoning with a story that had been keeping me sick in my body for 34 years. And putting that story out of my body onto paper was something that I always thought I was not good enough or smart enough or brave enough to do. I woke up the morning after I had finished it, and I had no idea if it would ever see the light of day. And I had a burning in my right arm, on the underside of my right arm, and it was honestly as clear as waking up in the morning and knowing in the same way that you just know you're not going to survive without your coffee, that I was going to get my first tattoo. And I got the story of Alice Hart, which is my story, tattooed on the underside of my writing arm. And the power of choosing to mark my body because it's mine, rather than having scars that anybody else put on my body that I have to live with, changed me forever. And that is joy. And that self-decoration is joy. And now Sam says to me, am I going to wake up one morning and you're just going to be like eyelids and the rest (laughs) is going to be tattooed? And I'm like, if I choose so. (laughs) So when I was writing Esther Wilding and I thought about how Aura might tell her story. That came from a really uh, personal place in understanding that wearing stories literally on her skin was the best that she could do to tell her story. And I love Thank that in the book as well, the idea that um, when she goes to visit the tattoo artist, she says, well, you might, you might, if you're looking for clues about Aura, you might start by asking how she marked herself because the tattoo is a desire for change. Mm. And the whole book is about change your story and you change yourself. It's wonderful. I just wanted to ask, why did you choose Lutruwita, Tasmania as a setting for the Wilding family? On, sorry. So the question is, why did I choose Lutruwita, Tasmania as one of the three settings in the novel? And so if we pick up from where I was the day that I discovered Helena Nyblom and Violanta, that story, 
something that uh, I had learned in my 20s because I had the enormous honour and privilege of living on Anunu land in the Western Desert for four years, and I lived in an Aboriginal community there, and I learned that you cannot take a story away from the place that made it and that the place makes. Place and story go together. I couldn't take a story from Uluru and transport it onto the Bungle Bungles. And so in that same way, when I was thinking about stories of women, skins, the sea, Selkie fairy tales, they are all northern Arctic stories. And I didn't want to write a story predominantly set there. I wanted to write it set on this country. And then I thought, there are seals in Tasmania, but those seals in Tasmania have tens of thousands of years of story with women because sea country is women's country in Lutruwita, as you may know. And so that is what set me off on the, maybe the most rewarding part of writing this novel was reaching out to the elders in the community, uh, the women, uh, and asking if, if they would work with me on their culture, their shell stringing, their language. And it was uh, in that way I could tell the story of the southern place and seals without trying to implant or put something on what's very much already there. Wonderful. I feel like there's a strong, there's such strong women in your stories and they do seem very feminist. But I'm just curious about the the men in the stories and it mm. does seem like in both Alice and Esther mm. there's this sort of salvation figure of the the men with whom that they have relationships and mm. I was just wondering how that sort of fits into that feminist narrative and if you can give some insights into that. I'm guessing that maybe you're thinking about, are you thinking about Sophus as a salvation figure for Esther? Is that, yeah. And, and the vet. And the vet and Moss, Yeah. So I had this same question when I was writing this, when I was writing both of these books. I had the same question, and I very much did not want to insinuate or indicate that the salvation for Alice or Esther was in attaching themselves to a man. But I have also learned, oh God, <sighs> I have also learned something that I never thought I would get to learn, and that is what happens when you do not ignore a beautiful, kind human being that turns up in front of you and sees you and they just happen to be a man. And doing that and mine changed my life. I can't look at you, babe. God damn it. Turn away. I brought tissues on stage. <laughs> Because I knew we were going to get there. Just say. And, and, and it's a really emotive thing to talk about. Because when I met Sam, he was kind and warm and gentle and nothing that I knew masculinity to be. If I had not believed that his attention and his kindness was something that I deserved, I would have missed out on the most transformative relationship of my entire life. And I wanted that... I wanted to drop that in for Alice and for Esther, that these human beings are really good and they also happen to be men. Okay. <laughs> 
I think we have time for one more question. Thank you for making the playlists. I thought to do it myself, but then that you'd already done it and collated all of the songs. <laughs> that was so special. And to be able to play them in the background and listen to these songs while I was reading and drinking the tea was just to be absolutely immersed was just the coolest thing. And I just wondered if that was an intentional thing to um, mm. help the reader to really viscerally experience. Um, the truth is I wish I had been that clever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the playlists were my way of finding the courage to go back to the page. I found writing the 80s party, the memorial, right at the beginning of the book, so absurd and absurdly hilarious and mad and tragic that I started to not be able to write. So I, you know, with the technology, I'm like, you literally have every 80s song at your fingertips. So I made the playlist for my own courage. Bled Fleetwood Mac. I, my, if my stepdad ever hears everywhere ever again, I think he'll vomit. <laughs> and that's why I created them, was to put myself in the scene. And then the beautiful thing is that other people are enjoying them too. So thank you so much for your beautiful words. I wanted to thank you all for being part of today's session, but I particularly want to thank Holly for the people and the worlds you bring to life, for reminding us in so many different ways about the power of myth and story, to help us see ourselves and the world in new ways. Your work is full of joy and it sparks that in us when we read it. And I think it sparks a kind of healing as well. So thank you all for being with us and being part of Sydney Writers' Festival today. Please join me in thanking Holly Ringland. Oh, honey, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.